1: Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our interview with author David Beers as we cover the story, Immunity for Murder. David, it's great to have you back with us.
2: Yeah, great great to be back and uh, anxious to continue.
1: We covered the crime scene, and did we cover lyrics injuries?
2: Yeah, lyrics injuries were covered pretty well. Uh, the crime scene, uh, uh, we, we mentioned two of the search warrants. There was actually a third one later, uh, which was kind of meaningless, but they did do it. I'd like to discuss a couple of things. The bloody diaper, and I'd
1: like to discuss the bag of clothing, which was not investigated or even opened up uh, yeah. by the investigators. Let's discuss those two just for starters. And what was found in the bathroom?
2: Like, like I mentioned in part one, when Lyric was found that morning, after the EMTs removed his blue jeans, he, he was just in a diaper and then that, the red shirt underneath a black hoodie. So that's what the, that's what he had on when he went to the hospital. But like I said earlier, when he when he got to the hospital the the doctors removed that clothing and replaced it with, you know, warm compacts and blankets and stuff. But Lyric's clothing, including that diaper, were actually secured by one of the witnessing patrol officers who had been sent there. And he put each item into a separate bag and labeled it accordingly and, and then ended up back in their evidence locker. So there was the, the diaper. A red long-sleeve cotton shirt and a black hoodie. About a week later, on January 7th, the one of the evidence technicians, uh, Sergeant Stebbins, pulled these items out of the evidence locker and began an examination. So she does it, like a naked eye exam of the uh, shirts and the hoodie and uh, and doesn't see anything, but doesn't doesn't do anything more with it. Doesn't send it to the lab, but then she pulls out the diaper and. She notices uh, specks of blood, blood transfer on the blood, on the, on the outside of Lyric's diaper. You know, keeping in mind, Lyric had no external injuries. And Veronica had told police that she had changed Lyric's diaper before she went to work. But when she came in the, the interrogation room that next morning, she didn't have any injuries. But Chucky as we mentioned earlier, when he was in the interview room, he his knuckles were bleeding. So at least from, from my perspective, and, and I was quite certain that Stebbins would have been thinking the same thing, why is there blood on the outside of Lyric's diaper? And whose is it? <laughs> so she extends, she expands her, her, her examination more by, uh, taking a, a series of photographs of these specks of blood on the diaper and then she actually takes these little red sticky arrows and, and puts them on the diaper pointing to their exact location and and, and one of them one of them John was uh, was actually on one of the closing t- tabs you can see it right in her picture there was there was a blood stain like in a crescent shape uh, right on the closing tab on, on that had actually bled through from one side of the closing tab to the other, and it looked awfully, awfully similar to that of a, a bloody thumbprint. So now, so now we have like five specks of blood on the external part of the diaper, including bloody thumbprint. So no, no fingerprint examination was done. So, so I guess I would ask you. What, what should have been the next step?
1: What they should have done was uh, they should have fingerprinted Pratt, number one, and they should have they should have compared Pratt's blood, which they never took, or his DNA, to the prints on the diaper.
2: Yeah. yeah so D- DNA exam on the diaper would be kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> they never did it. You've got to ask just, yourself why. You know, so th- she just packed it up, put it back in the evidence locker. But it, it gets worse later on. When the, when the DA, who's, who's gonna be prosecuting her, comes in to look at the diaper himself. Sergeant Stebbins finds the blood on this diaper in early January of 2011, so just about a week after this happened. By now, they're, they're, they're targeting Veronica Taft. And the district attorney who was originally overseeing the investigation, for, for whatever reason, he resigned uh, like in April of 2011, and went into private practice. So the, the, the district attorney, the head district attorney, appointed uh, a new prosecutor to oversee the case. The DA's name was Gerald Mullen, and he appointed his chief assistant, Peter Delucia When Delucia's getting up to speed on the case, I believe it was uh, April, or I think it was May of 2011, he contacts the Binghamton police and, and he he wants to come over and look at the evidence, but he's only interested in the diaper. He didn't want to see the shirt. He didn't want to see the hoodie. He didn't want to see the mattress cover that they took from the bedroom. He just wanted to see that diaper. So he goes over there and Stebbins pulls it out, lays it out for him. He looks it over for about eight minutes. That's according to the log. So so now he's he's he sees the blood firsthand. So so you would think, at that point, the responsible thing would be because the same questions would would be there: whose blood is it? You know, we we need to know whose blood this is. Yeah, uh, but he doesn't do it. He, he they just put it back in the evidence locker again. I mean, how how can you not do that? Uh, that's uh. That's just irresponsible, it's unprofessional. And then the explanation that they offer later in the trial is just uh, bizarre. Amazing.
1: Lie detector test, was uh, Veronica submitted to one? I guess Chucky wasn't because the only time they had Chucky in police headquarters was that very first time, is that right?
2: That's right, they, I mean, they, they did talk to him a little bit later, but by then he had his own, he had an attorney with him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so that that interview was very limited. But no, they, uh, Chucky, because he lawyered up so quickly, they didn't, they didn't bother to ask him for a polygraph. But but the interesting thing about Veronica, e- even during her very first interview, she, she offered because she said, just so you guys can clear up any misgivings about me doing this, I'm willing to take a polygraph. Do you guys do that here? And what did they say? Well, we'll keep it in the back of our mind. Do you think we should give you one? I mean... That just seems so silly. I mean, they, you you got a you got a volunteer who, who's actually a, a, a key witness, possible suspect, and and you don't take her up on that. I I, I just found that amazing. I was and amazed
1: I, reading too that Veronica Taft through those interviews, and she was trying to stand up for herself. She didn't have an attorney present, and she's no. trying to she's trying to sort out in her head what these guys are asking her, and the, and they're they're trying to kind of pin her down as if she's guilty. And she's just one person yep. trying to answer them as best she can. She also offered to take a urine test.
2: Yeah, later on she did. Yeah, when she when they started accusing her of of being a crack user. Yep. Because of the what what I called in the book. The cry, of the ladies. cry ladies. Yeah, cry ladies. <laughs> They're all because they were all women who who had an axe to grind with Veronica. And, Said she uh, was cooking cocaine in the bathtub or just everything. Uh, it was really, really bizarre. But so she, she not only offered to take a polygraph, but but she kept telling them. She says, once you find out the time of death, you'll know it wasn't me. Yep. And 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 the bizarre thing is, they already knew that. They already knew what the estimated time was, and and they're still pushing for her. It just never made any sense. Let's discuss Jesse Noel, the
1: jailhouse switch, and how his testimony pretty much hung her out to dry.
2: Oh boy. Jesse Knoll, the desperate snitch. Yeah, that's what he was. Jesse was uh, He was actually a, a friend of Veronica's for a while. They had met and had a little brief tryst together and she'd actually gotten pregnant from him and uh, ended up later having a miscarriage. But, but Jesse had his own set of problems because he was in a relationship with another woman and they had three kids together and he was involved in several incidents of domestic violence he had he'd been arrested before several times and he gets arrested again uh now this time he gets arrested like in june of 2011 and the police knew that he'd had a relationship with veronica so they used the opportunity to question him about what he could tell them about her so you know of course now jesse uh, now he's facing a, a felony charge now with a good possibility of going to state prison. So he's, he's looking for a deal. So he wants to sh- come up with something that maybe can help him stay out of prison. So, so he tells them this story about uh, going over to Chucky's house after Lyric died and confronting him about what happened. You know, why is he threatening Veronica? And why is he, you know, what happened to Little Lyric? And according to Jesse Knoll, he he tells the police that Chucky admitted that he was the one that killed Lyric. Kicked him and then and, and put him back in bed. So he tells the police this. And and then again the next day they interviewed him again, he tells them the same story. And then uh Shouldn't there have been a, a huge uh earthquake of a shift right at that uh, point? Well, you you would think, but you know, keep in mind this is this is June, so now they're already six months into pursuing Veronica. So after they learn of this information, it, they had to be faced with that ultimatum, with that dilemma, you know, what do we do now? If Chucky did this, you know, how are we gonna handle this? Because we, we've been pursuing Veronica. We already abandoned him. So Jesse goes to jail to await further court proceedings. But, but in the interim, he keeps con- continuing to talk with the district attorney and and his attorney, and they they put together what they call a debriefing agreement, uh, and then they go and talk to him at the jail, with his attorney present. So so it's now it's Delusha and two of the lead investigators from the Binghamton police, and the DA's investigator, and they talk to Jesse Noel. Not But this time, the camera was rolling, so it was all, all, it's all 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 recorded. Jesse Noll lays out the same scenario once again. After the after the district attorney tells him, you know, you need to be as honest as you can. Tell the God's honest truth. So he lays out the story once again, claiming that it was Chucky who confessed to murdering Lyric. Then all of a sudden they started hammering him with telling him that they didn't believe him, that none of what he was saying was making any sense, and they told him why. So now noel knows he's in trouble and and if, if they don't believe him uh he's he's gonna go to jail so, so the the police you know took advantage of his vulnerability and gave him an out that he was just looking for and and then they said to him was it was that veronica that did this what was was she the one that told you that she was the one that did this and he switched gears and, and, and flipped her under the bus and, and changed his story. And now he's saying that, yeah, it was Veronica. She called me and told me the whole thing. <laughs> so, so that's what they went with.
1: Noel was not granted immunity because he testified. He changed his testimony, testified against Veronica. What about Chucky? Was, did Chucky have
2: immunity? Chucky did have immunity. Uh, Who gave it to him and why did he have it? The district attorney. Uh, when, when Chucky testified at the grand jury uh, that indicted Veronica. So the, so the thing is with with immunity if if a witness doesn't waive their immunity before they testify in writing they're automatically granted immunity. But, but in this case Chucky, Chucky was still a viable suspect and he probably wouldn't he probably never would have waived immunity uh, but but they needed him to testify, so he got immunity. And nothing related to his testimony could never be uh, used to charge him uh, in the future.
1: And I'm sure that that's what they coached him with.
2: Oh yeah, he, I, he I'm sure that either, they either told him that or his attorney told him that, that uh, he could never be charged with anything related to his testimony. I'm not sure where it fits, but I was just
1: I was looking at the testimony of Lynette Pica when she said that Veronica put the kids to bed while she was up there. Yes. They sat on the bed and talked about possibly getting together on New Year's Day. When Veronica left for work, she went downstairs with her. Chucky and Jamel were still upstairs with the kids. Shortly after going downstairs, the music upstairs was turned up. So, Lynette Pica testified seeing the kids, and she testified seeing Lyric. That's right. She, and she, she being put she, to bed. Yeah, she which didn't means he wasn't testi- being put to bed in his blue jeans
2: and street clothes. Right. Pika uh, didn't actually testify, but she did tell the police that. Yeah. Um, when when uh, when I got involved, I went to talk with her, and she she wouldn't she wouldn't admit that she had told the police those things. Okay. And, and denied denied that there was ever any seeing the kids. So she and, just, just changed her story. She didn't want to testify. And the police investigation sure wasn't going to bring that up in front of the jury, right? Oh, no. So she, she became a, a non-issue, I guess you could say, uh, because she wasn't going to cooperate and tell the truth.
1: We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night.
0: That's managementconcepts.com.
1: And now back to part two of Immunity for Murder, the Veronica Taft story by David M. Beers. David, would you explain uh, the lie detector test and
2: how that went? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, We'd already discussed, uh, you know, Veronica, during her first interview, offered to uh, take a lie detector test, and uh, they decided not to do that. So interestingly, about... Five months uh, into their investigation, of course, now she's the uh, number one uh, suspect. But now, but now she she knows she's a suspect. In fact, she by this time, she had already sought legal advice, and she had an attorney that was representing her, even though she hadn't been charged with anything. So, uh, in in May, I believe it was May of 2011, her attorney gets a letter from Delusia. ADA, wanting to know if, if Veronica would be uh, amenable to uh, taking a lie detector test, and he laid out the conditions of the of the test. Well, initially uh, her attorney didn't respond, so he sends a second letter later on and uh, wants to know if uh, she's still willing to do this. But he explains some of the rules. But by this time, you know Veronica knows she's a suspect, or attorney knows she's a suspect, so. Uh, to, to make a long story short, they didn't feel there was any advantage to her taking the lie detector and, and the only advantage would be for them to try to you know, discredit her or to use her lie detector examination against her somehow, even if she passed. So they, they declined to, uh, to take the lie detector at that point.
1: As far as the other three children, would testimony from the young children be admitted in a courtroom, and was it in
2: this case? No, it was not. It, it, it's not likely that they would do that. The, the only possibility would be if uh, if there was something really pertinent that they said during uh, an interview with, with Child Protective Services or, or the when they were interviewed by the uh, Advocacy Center for Children. But the the two oldest children were interviewed. In fact, the oldest one was, was interviewed two or three times, and uh, her story changed each time. She, she really was kind of all over the place, probably because she was frightened. She was only five, and uh, so that was, that was never used. But the, the, other, the other interesting thing that we kind of jumped over was uh, was the uh, incidents that uh, CPS had been involved in previously. Absolutely. So th- this was, uh, I think this was kind of a turning point in the case early on in the investigation of course Child Protective Services was notified immediately because of the surviving children so they were right there on day one setting up shop at the Binghamton Police Department and working together and what they did that they shouldn't have done but they did but because it was a homicide I can understand why they did it they pulled all of their uh, CPS reports they had on Veronica Taft and, and turned them over to the police Now, ordinarily that would require a court order or a subpoena. But because it was a homicide, they they just voluntarily turned them over to the police, and, and in return, after Veronica was arrested, they turned them over to the defense, to, to myself and uh, Veronica's attorney. So when we're going through those reports, we find all of these incidents that were reported to Child Protective Services that had been investigated and they all involved Veronica Taft, and all these numerous complaints about her being a crack dealer and a cocaine user, cooking crack in her tub, abusing her children, neglecting them, throwing them off the couch, injuring them, and every time CPS went there, every time, they did the responsible thing and checked them out, because these girls would call in the hotline so they don't have to tell them who they are, but Veronica knew who they were uh, because she'd had uh, fallings out with them. And they, they so they'd go over and, and they'd make these unannounced visits to Veronica's house, checking on her kids for injuries or bruises or neglect, uh, never finding a thing. And then they would do spot checks, drug tests, urine tests on Veronica, checking for drugs. Never once was it positive. She was clean every time. So they wrote up all these reports. As being unfounded, oftentimes referring to them as being vindictive, or deemed uh, not credible. So that that's what that's what kind of disturbed me and, and and Veronica's attorney that they they were still trying to use these same cry ladies I call them uh, to testify against Veronica and bring out all of these same allegations once again, which would actually uh, falsely portray. Uh, Veronica's character.
1: Yeah, let me read a, sec- a section from your book that that supports that. Yeah. After all, according to the Cry Ladies, she was a prostitute and a druggie who cooked crack in her bathtub, screamed at and regularly beat her kids, never bathed them, lived in a maggot-infested home, taught her two-year-old how to masturbate and more. Because she was branded a bad mom, that must also mean she murdered her son, right? Apparently so, because soon after Mullen's decision, There was a united team effort to launch an aggressive and unjust campaign to pursue pretend justice against their new target, Veronica Taft, a campaign which by design was strategically carried out to exclude, reject, or ignore anything and everything that pointed to Charles Pratt. Instead, their focus was strictly limited to only what was needed to arrest and prosecute Veronica Taft. Pretend justice? That's what it was. Because they knew damn well Pratt was the real killer. But having lost their opportunity to prosecute him, or so they thought, they would just pretend it wasn't him. Then, to make matters worse, pretend it was Veronica instead. That's a pretty that's a pretty hefty accusation, but based on just what you've said so far, I don't see how it can't be entirely true.
2: yeah, I, I think it's more than an accusation. I think that's exactly what uh, what they did because they, they were just ignoring the the, the real evidence and, uh, and and going after her with bizarre things that, that that weren't really evidence how is it an investigative team a team
1: that uh, surrounds a, a good prosecutor can all get on the track like that how does that happen have you I know you've seen it before obviously in our last story we saw it how What's the mindset? Is there anybody in that group who says, man, something just doesn't smell right here. I don't like this. I'm gonna stand up yeah. against it. Or are they all just too
2: afraid for their salaries? I think that's part of it. You know, they, uh, uh, it, it, it did trouble me that, uh, and I often wondered whether somebody did try to stand up and say, hey, whoa, what are we doing here? Why are we, we know who did this. Why are we going after this mother? Um, but like you said, if, if somebody had done that, and more likely than not, they, they would be chastised for it or overruled or, or even maybe taken off the detail. They just decide to keep their mouth shut and, uh, become part of the team effort. And and this, this is, this is what the DA wants. So this is what we're going to do. Let's move to the
1: third search warrant.
2: Okay. I've got here March 30th, 2011. Yeah. So this was like three months later. The investigation is progressing. During during the interviews with Veronica and Chucky and-, and the kids, police were theorizing that or believing that Veronica and Chucky would discipline the children with a with a black plastic spoon, a kitchen utensil of type. And you know, Veronica denied that uh, when they interviewed her. She said she would she did use black spoons in the kitchen, but not not to hit her kids with. She admitted that she would occasionally, you know, pop him on the hand or the butt uh, as discipline, but never, you know, hit him with anything. But, but obviously, the police didn't believe that. For some bizarre reason, th- three months later, uh, they decided to go back to Veronica's apartment. She she long since vacated it. it, and there was nobody even living there anymore. In fact, the the front door had been barricaded with some plywood but they go back and their only purpose their only purpose was to look for these black plastic kitchen utensils and and they found them they they found one in her bedroom they found some more on the kitchen but but the interesting thing was uh, in the you know comparing the the pictures they took in the third search, search warrant with those that they took in the first there was no black spoon in Veronica's bedroom and there were no black plastic spoons in the kitchen. They they just weren't there. So they were of really no value whatsoever. It, it just made no sense that they that they would do that. So they were just trying to trying to uh, unravel Veronica's claim that she'd never used a black plastic spoon. But even if they found one, it wouldn't have proved a thing uh, other than being used legitimately in the kitchen.
1: Now, their third search warrant asked for, quote, any clothing or footwear, personal effects or other items that may be evaluated for the presence of DNA and other physical evidence common with the scenes being processed and subjected to forensic examination and evaluations. Did they actually gather any of those clothing or footwear or personal effects, or were they just after the spoon?
2: They were just after the spoon, you know. But, but now that you mentioned that, uh, and, and I think I mentioned this a couple times in the book, you know, even even after the second and third third search warrant, Lyric's pants were still there, lying on the floor <laughs> in Veronica's bedroom, right where they were left on day one. My thought was, you know, when, when when you see the the specks of blood on Lyric's the outside of his diaper, you know, that means that somebody was bleeding. And, and that blood transferred onto the diaper while he was being changed. He wouldn't have been changing his own diaper. And whoever did that, if, if he was in blue jeans at the time, they would have had to take them off, change the diaper, and then put them back on. So right. there was right. a good chance there would have been some blood on the blue jeans as well. But they didn't think of that. You know, they, <laughs> that wasn't important, they just left them there. I, I, it just kind of blows me away that they did that. In the kid's bedroom, where Lyric was found, there's this little closet, very small, and when the police went there the first time, the first search warrant, they took a picture of this big black garbage bag sitting on the floor in the closet, but it was all tied up shut, and they just took one picture of it, and that was it. They didn't open it, didn't look inside. Then they go back three weeks later, and they take another picture of it, still there, but this time, they, they open up the top of the bag and expose uh, the, the topmost uh, material. And there's this like pink-colored fabric, and it's got a brown stain on it. And they just leave it at that. They, they don't take out anything else. Uh, just, so there's just that one picture of this bag with the top open showing that stained pink garment or, or material. Ah, uh, but we'd have no idea what's underneath it or or what else may have been there. but when you when you look at that bag and and consider the mm-hmm. the items that were missing uh, in this case, uh, it became very suspicious to me that there may have been items in there that might help to explain explain you know, what happened. Lyrics, pajamas that were missing, Havine's, uh, one of the Veronica's oldest daughter, her her pink uh, Barbie comforter was missing. And the other interesting thing was that we, that we hadn't discussed yet was that Chucky's uh, sleep clothes were also missing. Uh, and, and ordinarily, when Veronica would get home from work, he'd still be in his sleep clothes in, in bed. But that morning, uh, he was waiting at the door. He was all dressed in. Uh, and when you when you look at the photographs of the police that the police took, you know his sleep clothes aren't seen anywhere. Did they get
1: their black spatula because they 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 were trying to make the case that the search was for the that they wanted the black spatula because they were gonna I guess they weren't gonna prove that they actually beat him to death with a black spatula but what did they want the spatula for?
2: Just just to prove that they existed I guess yes they they actually did find some and they and they took them into evidence but they they, they never did anything with them we we mentioned a couple times we should probably go back to the uh, to the bathroom. The, uh, the other thing that uh, kind of became significant to me later in reviewing the police photographs, especially after I uh, discovered some of these missing items, and I started putting together a possible theory as to what happened. I went back and looked at some of the police photographs, and there was a picture in the bathroom of the bathroom floor, and there was, a, it, it, there was this towel, a wet towel scrunched up on the bathroom floor, and, and right next to it, like a a blue washcloth, which is also appeared to be wet. And, and when I showed those pictures to Veronica, she, she was she was surprised. She said, no, we, we never just leave a wet towel on the floor like that, we'd hang it up so it would dry. So she was surprised, and then the stain on it couldn't be explained either, because it was, it, was, it was a white towel, but it had this brown stain on it. Uh, so I'm, I'm starting to get a little suspicious as to what may have uh, taken place.
1: We'll return with Part 3 of our interview with David M. Beers, his book, Immunity for Murder, tomorrow night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, if you're enjoying our show, please do send us a review. We appreciate reviews very much. Part 3, tomorrow night. We'll see you then.